If you're a cannabis business owner looking to expand into new markets and need guidance and support you can trust, consider Collateral Base, a group that has done it before in multiple merit-based and limited market states. Collateral Base was founded by an experienced cannabis attorney with highly educated consultants with master's degrees and years of experience in the cannabis industry. The Collateral Base team is confident they know cannabis licensing better than any of their peers. And I encourage you to see for yourself. It just takes one phone call. If you're ready to expand your cannabis business into new limited markets, contact Collateral Base today at 309-306-1095. That's 309-306-1095. Or visit collateralbase.com. Everything is personal right here. Everything is personal right here Everything is personal right here Let me end on the N.A. Heat guaranteed when you press in the play Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything is Personal. And as always, our lovely co-host, the former champion figure skater who almost made the Olympic team for the USA, Miss Kimberly Dillon. Thank you for Hello. joining us. Excited to be here. And I'm excited because we have a really special guest for everyone. We have Dr. Jamie Karun, who's an ND, MPH, medical director of the Center for Medical Cannabis Education and a medical advisor for CV Sciences. Welcome aboard. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So I was just mentioning prior to getting on this that we we sort of, uh, our, our paths have crossed in the, in the past in doing research. And I, and I was talking to, to Dr. John Abrams previously, and there was a whole bunch of different things that uh, we were working on together as part of the dosing project, and also as uh, you know, some some of the other uh, some of the other studies that we're looking at. To I don't know if you know anything about our company, but we're doing the genetic sequencing up front. So the idea was to do DNA sequencing to provide you know a protocol of some sorts to do EEG measuring uh, to see what the efficacy of those protocols are and to be able to report on those findings. So one of the things I found really fascinating about the work that you've done is there's a lot of published peer-reviewed essays. So before I even get into, you know, tell me what an ND is for our audience and all that, uh, I wanted to understand sort of your approach to research. Like how, how do you even approach the subject matters and the topics and all that other stuff? So maybe you can kind of uh, fill us in on that. Yeah, well, I I am a research investigator at one of the naturopathic medical schools called uh, NUNM, National University of Natural Medicine. It's in Portland. And so I do all different types of research studies with that institution, some of which have to do with hemp and CBD, but most of which have to do with natural products, dietary supplements for the most part. And then my cannabis-oriented research, I pretty much do myself under the umbrella of the Center for Medical Cannabis Education. And those opportunities either come in from companies who are wanting to conduct some research on their projects, or they come in because I hear something or learn something that I think is interesting and I want to learn more about it. Um, you know, recently I published a systematic review on CBN and sleep. And I looked at all of the studies, the preclinical and the clinical studies that had anything to do really with CBN and which is cannabinol, which is a phytocannabinoid and uh, sleep or effects even similar to sleep like lethargy or fatigue. And this came out of really my desire to see whether there was anything there, because this is one of the more common claims that are made in industry. If you were to walk into any dispensary and you were looking at products that are marketed to help with sleep, they're going to have CBN in them. And so, you know, in this particular example, that project just came out of my own curiosity. 
about whether there was anything there, there. Yeah, I was going to, I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to ask you that's, I made a note and I read that study and I believe that you and I are fully aligned on the uh, CBN and we looked at all the research that we possibly could. And we're not we're not divulging the results of the study yet, Kimberly. I know that you can't wait to hear, uh, you know, no, Jamie's like, opinion uh, on that. Like a tease. It is a teaser. We'll get to that. Uh, Jamie would love for you to read his study on PubMed uh, instead of him giving. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, we'll, we'll, I was we'll, like, wait, I don't we'll, think lay people go to PubMed. <laughs> oh, well, they should. <laughs> they should because people should know what they're putting in their bodies and there's a good way to be able to look at that because there's actual research uh, done on that stuff. But it sounds as if there's professional investigators. Yes. <laughs> all right, Jamie. It. All right. All right. Let's let's on let's my behalf, do the, is that not let's do the reveal. Let's do the reveal. Is that uh, not how I understood your job? <laughs> that you're doing this on behalf of society. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, to an extent, yes. Um well, I mean, this is really just a perfect example of what's going on in the broader world of medical cannabis research, in the broader world of natural products research, in the broader world of everything, which is that whether it's keto or crypto or CBD or CBN, everything in our culture these days gets hyped up, especially if there's some money to be made, and then claims are made, and then there's this huge gap between the claims or the cultural understanding and then the scientific understanding. And so when we look at research that's looking at CBN and sleep, for example, it's really quite limited. And, um, you know, this is a really important point because much of the research that relates to cannabinoids and cannabis in particular, I'm referring to the plant, as opposed to maybe FDA-approved uh, cannabinoids, is that for reasons that we all know, mostly the federal prohibition and the classification of the plant as a Schedule One controlled substance, there isn't a lot of clinical trial evidence. There's a lot of basic science evidence. There's a lot of chemistry that was done to look at these individual compounds. This goes back to the 30s. I think CBD was isolated and chemically characterized in the 30s, and then THC in the early 60s. And so we have chemistry, we have some preclinical studies, we have pharmacology, but just because CBN may activate a cannabinoid receptor doesn't mean that individuals who were randomized to the treatment group in a randomized controlled trial experienced better sleep-related outcomes than those who were randomized to a placebo. Um, so when it comes to looking at all of the evidence around CBN and sleep, there are actually no randomized controlled trials looking at CBN and sleep-related outcomes. And so it's a, it's a huge stretch. Um, but what we do have, and we have this for CBN and CBD and so many other things, is this huge body of evidence that is mostly comprised of personal experiences and personal testimonials. And, you know, evidence itself is very heterogeneous or heterogeneous, I should say. Excuse me. A randomized controlled trial is different than an observational study. And a preclinical study, which is done in animals, um, is very different than a clinical study that is done in humans. And so, the problem that we run into with anecdotal evidence is on one hand, it's overwhelming, but on the other hand, it's a very low quality, uh, it's a very low quality evidence because there's so much um, possibility that bias will influence our subjective experience. And, you know, half of the time we have these stories about things, whether it's psychedelics or CBD, and before a person even tries these things, they have preconceptions about what the experience is going to be like. And so that right there automatically should tell us that we can't necessarily rely on their self-report because there are factors other than the individual agent's effect on their physiology that could explain their subjective experience. So have you found 
any reference assays in PubMed on actual CBN, even in, you know, in vitro, that it has showed a promise as a sedative for sleep? Um, you know, there are, I think there are seven, eight, maybe nine studies where CBN was administered to humans. Uh, and most of these studies were conducted in the 70s and the 80s. And most of these humans were healthy subjects. So these are not patients or research participants with sleep disorders. And they're in a controlled setting. They basically come into a clinic or a lab. And sometimes the CBN is administered IV. Sometimes it's administered orally. And then they monitor them over a period of time. And sometimes they're measuring objective outcomes like their heart rate or their blood pressure. And then they're also typically measuring subjective output or subjective measures like drowsiness or fatigue. And so there was really only one study that showed that CBN, and, and by the way, also what makes it complicated is that they're also doing various combinations. Like here's CBN and THC, here's CBN and CBD, here's CBN and THC at five milligrams, here's CBN and THC at 10 milligrams. And so you know, there's so many different um, facets of some of these studies, but in terms of treating sleep disorders, no. In terms of potentially leading to some degree of fatigue, you know, barely a signal there, probably nothing, but maybe something. And it was really only one of these studies and one of these combinations of THC and CBN, et cetera, that, uh, that really was was anything of note, and it's really not too much to note, but that's the thing that people point to when they want to make this claim, this one study that showed that participants reported feeling more drugged and drowsy when taking CBN and THC as opposed to just taking THC. Meanwhile, when they just took CBN, they didn't report feeling drugged and drowsy. So perhaps there's something with CBN and THC together, but... Um, not enough information to really say. I have a question. Um, is cannabis as an industry in line with other industries that you see in terms of a liberal use of claim making with lack of evidence? Well, that's a great question. Um, I think it's probably not in line with the pharmaceutical industry and it's not in line with the natural products industry. The natural products industry does have a lot of hype, but in both of those industries, the FDA has very specific regulations related to claims. So if your ingredient, if we're talking about a dietary supplement or if your additive, your food additive, if we're talking about a food or if your drug wants to, or the manufacturer of one of these three things wants to make a claim that relates to a disease, like a sleep disorder, let's say, well, then it has to be FDA approved. And here are the claims that you can make. If you want to say something a little fuzzier, maybe about supporting healthy sleep, then that's not treating a disease. That's just talking about a physiological function, uh, sleep, and support is pretty broad or ambiguous. And so there are the FDA has certain types of health-related claims, uh, like structure function claims and nutrient content claims and nutrition deficiency, nutrient deficiency claims. But in the world of cannabis, you know, this is regulated for the most part by the individual states that have medical or recreational uh, regulations. And very rarely do these states have regulations about what medical claims can be made. I live in California and California does have some language around those claims, but I don't know that California has anyone to enforce them. Frankly, the FDA struggles to enforce them. So I think, you know, it's probably, if I were to rank those three, the pharmaceutical industry is the most tightly regulated with regard to those claims, then the natural products industry. And then on top of that, it's the cannabis industry with very few regulations and lesser resources to enforce them. What if, what's wrong with placebo? And the reason why I asked the question the way I do, so we talked about CBN, let's let just uh, use as, a, as an analogy. And, and obviously you already mentioned why we have a lack of real 
real world evidence because of prohibition and all that other stuff. But back in the day when you would find uh, you know, a bag of cannabis in your car that was sitting there for a long time in the sun. Uh, from an anecdotal standpoint, you uh, consuming that and say, oh man, this stuff got me couch locked or some of that. So the way that I always kind of described it to people and correct me if I'm wrong, I always talk about like the banana analogy. You know, you have you, this green banana, which you just cut down the plant. It's not ripe. It doesn't have its full expression of its of, of its potential. Then the banana turns yellow, which is a perfectly cured, uh, you know, cultivar that has the potential of expression of all these terpenes and uh, phytocannabinoids. And then you have sort of this brownish banana it starts to deteriorate and starts to convert and change some of its components, which is uh, the way that I always describe what CBN is to people. Maybe there is a, a reason why the THC and the, the t- deterioration of CBG um, or, or that, uh, you know, that cannabinoid deterioration that converts to CBN, maybe that is creating this feeling of sedation. But if I'm feeling that like that, and it's my anecdotal feedback, uh, I know that's not scientifically valid, but uh, why can I say, well, you know, I'm, I'm taking these products. This is the way it makes me feel. This is the way it makes all my friends feel. And you have anecdotal evidence. Uh, why can't you stake a, a claim or a structure function claim just based on that? So two things. One, that that's a great point. And then also you asked what's wrong with placebo, which is a little bit different than I would like to answer because it's a great question. So if, for example, you find a bag of weed that's three years old and you smoke it, it makes you feel tired and it makes me feel not tired. Does it make you feel tired or not? Well, it makes you feel tired, but it doesn't make me feel tired. So whether, whether old weed is predominantly, the effects of old cannabis are predominantly mediated by CBN that's degraded from Delta-9 THC, and that that's why people feel tired when they smoke old cannabis. Well, we don't actually even know that people in general feel tired when they smoke old cannabis. We know that there's this story about it that circulates, but we don't actually know if we tested this story whether it's true or not. Is it an urban myth? Because there are lots of things that we believe that have actually no basis in evidence. And so like, maybe that's true, maybe it's not true. So I don't take that as fact. And something like that, as you know, in this industry, as soon as it goes from one mouth to another set of ears, it just starts going like this. And next thing you know, it's reported basically as fact. So maybe that's true, maybe that's not true. From a medical standpoint, this is a really important question. What's wrong with placebo? And, and placebo is great. If, for example, you take a CBN product and you feel that it helps you sleep and all of these studies, whether they're well-designed or not well-designed, whether they're randomized controlled trials or observational studies, if they say there's no association or there's no effect between CBN and sleep, but it helps you sleep, that's all that matters. So if you're a healthcare professional, you're like, great, my patient is doing better. If you're a patient, you're like, great, I'm sleeping better. We have no problems. But as soon as someone wants to make the claim that CBN improves sleep, well, now we need evidence. Now, if I said to you, I take CBN and it helps me sleep, that's a claim. It's my own personal experience. You should try it to see if it helps you sleep. And if it helps you sleep, great. But when we make broad claims that this thing does that, and we actually need more, more evidence, more research methods to really validate that claim. Yeah, you, that's an excellent point, especially when you started saying uh, it's a personal experience. I mean, uh, we, we find that a lot in doing the, the work that we're doing. You know, somebody's genotype, somebody's metabolic function, somebody's PK, all these different things matter in terms of consuming even the same exact, uh, you know, chemical variety uh, that they can have a completely different outcome. So it definitely makes sense if, um, that, that you're saying it in that way. And you're absolutely right. I agree with you on, on a placebo effect. If it makes me feel good, then that's my claim to myself. Uh, the challenge becomes is as an industry that grasps 
at little bits of straws everywhere because we have so little to grasp. Like this study that came out on, you know, uh, the acid molecules of CBG and, and, uh, and CBD on uh, COVID. And uh, I know that I'm already saying COVID. I know that I'm going to, uh, this episode may be flagged and all this other stuff. I thought uh, we weren't but- talking about <laughs> Joe Rogan. Well, <laughs> I didn't mention him. <laughs> I'm just saying that this ability, like it makes sense. Partially it makes sense because there is so little, little evidence. So anything that comes out, we want to grab because there's a there's a whole commerce piece to this with very little science. But you mentioned it really well. I mean, doing something in a Petri dish versus doing something in an animal versus doing something in human randomized, you know, controlled study is a huge difference. But then we have this huge juggernaut of commerce and these big, huge cannabis companies that are coming out and saying, okay, there's a little bit of a light in this tunnel. Let's grab this and let's pull this out and let's make this a way that we can sell more product. And I I just try to caution people about that. So I just want to get your thoughts and feedback. What can we do? What can an individual do to sort of measure this whole thing? Because, oh, now I'm going to go and I'm going to get as much CBGA. Like I'm talking to companies and they're like, we're selling out of CBG gummies. I'm like, it wasn't even CBG. Like, did you even read? It was uh, the acid molecule. Ah, people, they just see CBG. They don't even know if it's A or what that even means. So I just kind of want to get your thoughts on on being being cautious with all these different things. But can I just put a parameter on it? If either of you tell me that THCV does not lead to weight loss or appetite suppression, I am off this podcast. We're not talking. I'm not, not going to say anything. <laughs> I, I, I can say it. I can say it at, at the end. <laughs> uh, Len, this is a really big problem, the one that you're identifying, and it extends way beyond the world of cannabis. And there's a responsibility, I think, on both sides. There's a responsibility on the research investigator side. If you look at the press release that was put out about the study that you're talking about by Oregon State University, There is a quote from the lead investigator in that press release that talks about ingesting hemp products that have acidic cannabinoids in it. So that study had nothing to do with human beings ingesting anything. It was done in a test tube. So I don't know why there's a quote in the press release about humans ingesting cannabinoids. To me, especially given the current environment, that is irresponsible. So there's the investigator, there's the PR department at Oregon State University. That's that side of it. Not only what did our findings, you know, how should we communicate our findings, but how are they going to be received in the marketplace? We have to be responsible for how people are going to react to the information that we put out there. And then on the other side of it, you know, we as human beings, we have to be critical thinkers. And in this time, it seems like that skill has left um, a large percentage of us. Um, It's very challenging, especially with scientific information. But I think just as a general philosophy, being skeptical is probably a pretty healthy uh, philosophy to have. Um, so not necessarily just believing everything that you hear or jumping on every bandwagon, but you know, very often we are so desperate for solutions to our problems and we're kind of groomed in this culture where gratification seems to be immediate and everything is at our fingertips. And so honestly, I don't know what the answer is other than being personally responsible regardless of where you fit in the whole continuum. Yeah, that's that's a great point. So I want to sort of rewind and take it back. I jumped into it because I was so curious. I want to ask my questions, but I want to I want to find out a little bit more about yourself. Uh, where did you grow up? Uh, New Jersey. What part of Jersey? Uh, a town called Morristown, northern central New Jersey. Yeah, I'm from Philly originally. I used to work in Teaneck, New Jersey, so I'm nice. pretty familiar with. Uh, you know, are, are you a uh, sports fan of the Jersey uh, teams? Yes. Uh, so, and I say Jersey teams because the, you know I would say it's more of a Giants than than the Jets kind of, uh, or are you more of a Philly sports fan? 
Well, no, given my um, location in New Jersey, so as you probably know, northern New Jersey is more like New York sports teams. Southern New Jersey is more Philly sports teams. Right. I, I wanted you to make that clear for people. <laughs> well, because I don't know where don't Morristown understand. is. So is that north or south in this equation? It's north. So I'm a fan of the Giants and the Yankees and the uh, Knicks and the New yep. Jer- or the Brooklyn Nets. It used to be the New Jersey Nets, the mm-hmm. New Jersey Devils. Got it. Not I'm a California girl. So the- when you get to some states on the East Coast, I'm like, what are we talking about? <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Well, they don't. They don't. So Jersey doesn't have their own, you know, football and uh, and now basketball team. They only have a hockey team, uh, no baseball. So you you have to make a choice whether you're Cherry Hill, New Jersey, Understood. you're a Philly sports fan, you're North Jersey. Like on the other, I think Princeton maybe is the cutoff. I don't know. You correct me if I'm wrong, but maybe that's like the central spot where you go south, you're Philly, you go north, you're uh, New York. I don't know. I was asked today to name a player from the L.A. Rams while on camera. (laughs) And uh, a current player out of my mouth, (laughs) Matthew Stafford. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So. uh, and then you moved. Uh, you moved to California. Uh, yeah, I went to college in California, and I mean, I'm glad I grew up in New Jersey, but it ain't California, so I never went back. Really, I, I feel you on that. So, and then you, uh, at ND. So it's uh, w- what is an ND? A naturopathic doctor. Correct? Yeah, it's a good question. It stands for naturopathic doctor, and naturopathic doctors are licensed in. You know, honestly, I'm not sure what the right or the correct number is. I think it's 28, 29 states in the U.S. The scope of practice really varies depending upon the state. In some states, we are classified as physician-level providers, and we could do everything that an MD, a medical doctor, or a DO, an osteopathic doctor, can do. In other states, like California... We are classified as mid-level practitioners, and our scope of practice is more similar to a nurse practitioner or a physician's assistant. Naturopathic doctors go to medical school. It's a four-year school. In conventional medical school, the second two years, you do, you do rotations in hospitals. Uh, naturopathic doctors generally don't work in hospitals. So the second two years, when we get our clinical education, we're seeing patients in clinics that are owned and operated by the naturopathic medical schools. And then uh, I went to naturopathic medical school at Bastyr University in Seattle. I did a two-year residency up there, and uh, then I moved down here to San Diego, where I currently live. So in, in that and understanding, uh, you know, different types of uh, supplementation herbs and, and all those other things. How, what was the move to cannabis and uh, also the, uh, the, the, um, the, what is a center for medical cannabis education? Sorry. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm trying to remember uh, that acronym. Um, well, I actually wasn't practicing medicine at the time I was working at uh, university of California, San Diego doing research Um And what was happening at the time in California, which probably wasn't that unique, was we only had medical cannabis regulations. And in order to purchase medical cannabis products and to use and possess them, you needed a recommendation from a doctor. And so basically everyone was going into these doctor's offices and claiming that they met the state's criteria and then the doctor was giving them this recommendation and then collecting $125, $150 and saying, you know, here's a few business cards and brochures for some dispensaries around here. Have a great day. And they weren't actually practicing medicine. They weren't telling them what to take, how to take it, whether there was a risk of a drug interaction. They weren't saying, let's have you follow up in three weeks. You know, it was basically just a business. We give you the piece of paper. You give us the money. And then the patients would go to a dispensary where like, you know, a 25-year-old kid in a beanie who's smoking a joint on his lunch break would tell them what to take for their sleep disorder or their seizure disorder or whatever it was. And I don't mean to disparage um, bud tenders or salespeople at dispensaries, but what was also happening is there was a, a community of caregivers 
These were advocates who, some of whom were trained and licensed in healthcare, some of whom were just advocates and wanted to be helpful. And they kind of emerged to effectively practice medicine without a license. And so what I saw was this is actually kind of dangerous. Medical cannabis is perfect for naturopathic doctors. We learn about botanical medicines, which are very complex. That's, I think, one thing that people are starting to appreciate just by getting more exposed to the complexity of medical cannabis. Uh, it's very complex. There are interactions between constituents uh, in a single herb, or if you create a proprietary formula. And so um, naturopathic doctors are perfectly qualified to, to work in this space. So I said, okay, I'm going to go back and I'm going to start this um, really specialty clinical practice. It's a, it's a small part of what I do still, but I'm just going to use cannabinoids to treat people's conditions and symptoms and I'll be this specialist. And what I did was um, at the time I was um, approached by a colleague, Michelle Sexton, who's also an naturopathic doctor and a researcher at UCSD. She had built this database. And so I was fresh out of a master's in public health program. And so I was really wanting to publish some research and I had some good coding skills and data analysis skills. And so I basically took this data and published a paper in, I think it was published in 2017 in the Journal of Pain Research. And it was uh, around research participants who were substituting cannabis for their prescription drugs. And what drugs were they using it to substitute for? You know, what were the outcomes? Are they lowering their dose of those medications? Are they discontinuing them, those medications? What medications are we talking about? Et cetera, et cetera. And then I took this study once it was published just around San Diego area. And I went to these doctor's offices, mostly pain specialists. And I said, hey, if you have patients that are asking you about this and you don't know what to say or you don't know where to send them, I'm licensed in the state of California to practice medicine. Uh, I know what I'm doing. Here's a, a research publication that was published in a peer-reviewed journal. You know, please send them to me and uh, I'll be in communication with you. And so that's how my clinical practice and really my clinical research with regard to cannabis started. Got it. Uh, so you're also the, uh, is it the medical advisor for CV sciences? Did I get that right? Yeah. So who are CV sciences and what is, what does that role uh, uh, entail? So CV sciences is one of the, pioneering hemp-derived CBD product manufacturers. They were on the very early uh, wave of this humongous wave. Um, they're also based in San Diego. And um, I, the origin story there is basically I ran into Stuart Tomp, who is the SVP of business development there now. Um, at a conference, and I didn't know anything about CBD. I didn't know him, and I was just listening to things that he was saying. He was inserting CBD in all of these different conversations at this natural products conference, and uh, he was sounding really intelligent, and so he piqued my curiosity, and I met him, and then when I came back to San Diego, he gave me a tour of the facility, and not only was I interested in what this was going to become, but I was really impressed with him and with CB Sciences in general. They make a line of products called Plus CBD Oil. They have tons of products. They have immune products. They have sleep products. They have pain products, etc. cetera. Um, and really what impressed me about them is that they were doing things the right way. They all came from the dietary supplement industry. They knew all about claims, what claims were allowable, what claims were not, what type of research was needed to substantiate claims. And they invested heavily in research, and they published a couple of different uh, studies in peer-reviewed journals. And that was very different, especially at the time, but still today, from all of the companies that were jumping in it to try to make money, who didn't know anything about the dietary supplement industry, that didn't really know anything about the regulations, and frankly, didn't really care. And so I was like, oh, this company is doing things the right way. And so it began a conversation. And then 
as a medical advisor, um, I give them input on product formulation, on strategies, on research that they're going to fund. Uh, I do some webinars for them and some education. Yeah, that that that's really helpful uh, to make sense of things. Do you still have a uh, relationship with uh, UCSD? Uh, not a formal one, no. Well, informally, maybe you, you're aware that the NFL was uh, issuing a grant for studies, and uh, I believe UCSD got a percentage or a part of that grant. Uh, I just yes. wanted to kind of get your your informal without having any affiliation with UCSD. What are, what are your thoughts about the NFL's $1 million grant, I believe, to study the effects of cannabis? Uh, the NFL, the multi-billion, billion-dollar uh, uh, sports league, providing a $1 million that's split amongst, I think, two institutions uh, for research. Um, I mean, it's a step in the right direction. It's a fairly paltry sum compared to the earnings of the NFL. Um, You know, this is just one of the frustrating things, and there are many, about working in this industry. But I guess it's, you know, the, the positive side of it is that at least the NFL is moving in the right direction. Obviously, we would want more in terms of funding and then also in terms of the intensity of their desire to investigate this, given that so many of their employees are using it. And given that the science really does validate the investigation, we're not saying it necessarily would reduce CTE or any uh, outcomes related to uh, NFL player injuries, but there's enough science there to warrant the investigation. Yeah, it makes sense. So what is the mission you're working on to fulfill? What's, what's your mission? Well, I'm trying to educate. I'm trying to educate patients. I'm trying to educate healthcare professionals. I'm trying to educate anyone, really, the lay the lay audience. Um, you know, I'm writing. I'm publishing. I'm talking to patients. And so, my goal really was just to try to be one of the people in this space that is working towards changing our perception of this plant and these compounds. Um, and it is changing. And in you know, it's also this whole psychedelics wave is coming too. And so, you know, there's indication that this change is happening and, uh, you know, I'm optimistic. Well, since you brought it up and I had it down on my list to kind of mention to see what your thoughts are, uh, what are your thoughts on psychedelics and psychotropics as, uh, you know, a therapeutic agent? Well, I think they have potential. I think it's very similar to... Um, to medical cannabis. I mean, they're basically using the same playbook and the same dynamics exist with regard to research. There was research before the Controlled Substances Act in 1970, and then research stopped uh, for the most part. Um, And now there's a renewed interest and there's some funding and everybody is all excited about it. You know, I think one of the interesting things about the medical cannabis movement was that the drug war propaganda really stuck in people's minds. And as a result, even when there was Sanjay Gupta on CNN talking about the medical value of cannabis, people were still very reluctant to believe that. And that's a credible person and a credible source. But once CBD emerged, then it was like, oh, wait a minute. So I can actually explore this medical cannabis thing without the part of it that might get me addicted or the part of it that might get me high. And so the danger of it kind of was removed for a lot of people when the conversation shifted to CBD. And I think a similar thing is happening in the psychedelics realm with regard to microdosing. There are people like, oh, I would never take LSD or I would never take psilocybin. And now it's like, oh, well, actually, you could take a microdose and not feel intoxicated or not worry about a bad trip. And so all of these people who were curious, but also very cautious, their ears perked up. And now like, okay, well, maybe there is a way that I can play with this without having to face all of these fears and these dangers that I've been uh, hearing for so long. But uh, I guess along those lines, and it's it's a great analogy uh, that you brought up, along those lines, wouldn't it be sort of the same thing with cannabis set and setting and taking 
very small amounts and dosing at a very small level. Like, you know, they talk about, you know, start slow or uh, start low, go slow and all that other stuff. Wouldn't it be the same uh, thing as uh, microdosing with the psychedelics? Yeah, it could be. I mean, I think, you know, with the, the psychedelics conversation is very much focused on mental health disorders, psychiatric disorders, and it's very medicalized. And, you know, for example, the FDA, as you probably know, has approved a form of ketamine to be administered intranasally in patients that have major depressive disorder that is refractive, refractory to antidepressant medications. But those patients are receiving that medication in a doctor's office. They're not going home and using it like on their couch or they're not using it. I mean, they are, but that's actually illegal. But the FDA approved version of this is it's super tightly controlled. Um, and, and, and frankly, there's a lot of hoops to jump through. There's a lot of uh, therapy appointments before you even receive the medication, et cetera. Um, but I do think there are a lot of parallels there. So, so do you think the psychedelic industry uh, took some cues from the cannabis industry and said, you know what, we're going to move away from the Grateful Dead uh, version of uh, psychedelics and start looking at the therapeutic properties of what we can do to isolate for specific conditions, go through the right channels and see if we can get approvals for you know, MDMA for uh, PTSD, uh, psilocybin for depression or even treatment resistant depression specifically. And then so they don't have to look at the cultural aspects because I think, you know, personally saying that believe some of the challenges on moving forward in cannabis has been this whole, you know, movement, which I highly respect. And, you know, I used to be the president of the Cannabis Action Network, so I fought for this stuff. But the the isolating the focusing on a condition and using this as a therapeutic agent and going through the right channels uh, it seems to me the psychedelic industry is moving much more rapidly than uh, what the cannabis industry has done in the past yeah i would agree with that and i think they can thank the cannabis industry to a large degree for paving the way um you know when we think about fda approved cannabinoid drugs as just a comparison, you know, really we have the synthetic THC analogs, dronabinol and, um, and nabalone that were approved in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, but since then, we've really only had Epidiolex that was approved in 2018. You know, there is a, another drug, Sativex, which is the brand name Nabixamols. It's developed by the same company, um, Jazz Pharmaceuticals, that developed Epidiolex. And I'm, you know, I think that's making its way back through the FDA drug approval process to treat multiple sclerosis. But we haven't heard a lot of um, companies trying to develop and market um, or get approved other cannabinoid-based drugs that are, you know, from the plant. Yeah. No, I completely agreed. And and then you have, you know, as you mentioned, you have Epidiolex basically is, a, you know, cannabidiol derivative. And then you have a one-to-one Sativax, which is making its way through Europe to see if we can go back to the FDA approval process after yeah. Jazz acquired GW. Yeah, that makes total sense. What would you say some of uh, your biggest uh, challenges uh, have been? Well, from a clinical practice standpoint, I mean, the biggest challenge, I think, is um, the products, understanding what's in them, being able to rely on their availability. Um, You know, I think it's also a little bit challenging because there's not a model in medical cannabis where a patient goes to a pharmacy and they're dispensed the medication that the doctor prescribed. You know, I cannot sell or dispense any cannabis products. And so I am sending my patients to dispensaries. I'm telling them what to get um, and how much to take, et cetera. But there are people who are in their ear once they get there saying, oh, no, 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 you shouldn't take that. You should take this. And you know, that, that can be a challenge. Um, some of the companies are here today, gone tomorrow. Uh, sometimes it's difficult difficult to get certificates of analysis. You know, I will say, going back to CV Sciences and their Plus CBD products, 
they were the first company to put a QR code on the package of a hemp-derived CBD product so that you could be standing there in the aisle, scan the QR code on your phone, and pull up a certificate of analysis of the batch that the actual product that you're looking at came from. You know, even today in the medical cannabis world, if you can get a certificate of analysis about the product that you're trying to purchase, sometimes you can, sometimes you can't, you certainly can't get it in real time. And very often, if you request a certificate of analysis, which I do all the time from companies, you'll get a certificate of analysis from 2020. You know, one of the leading cannabis companies just sent me C of A's from 2020. And I'm just like, you know, so that, that's been a great challenge too. Um, there's a lot of education. There's a lot of handholding, which is fine. It just requires time. But, you know, there are a lot of patients who are very cautious and very concerned and also very curious. So they have a lot of questions and, um, because everyone seems to respond differently to phytocannabinoids, at least there's a, a great variability in terms of the response, um, everything is a little bit different. And so um, there's really not a cookie cutter approach to it. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, that's that's the whole point of why we, you know, we started Endocana Health to guide people to a personalized experience. So I completely agree with you. One of the things that you mentioned, I wanted to kind of get your opinion on this because you kind of been through the the Prop Two Fifteen uh, era. You mentioned this whole notion of, uh, especially with adult use, I think medical has really, really gone uh, completely down. There's no real differentiation. I walked to a dis- into a very prominent dispensary yesterday with a real patient who, and we tried to do an experiment, uh, who actually communicated that he has a, a diagnosis, a specific diagnosis. And the help that he received was so non-medical uh, the first question I asked, well, what is your preferred method of consumption? And I was like, man, you're really, you're really not helping this person at all. And you're going to give him something that may exacerbate, you know, he doesn't know what his metabolic function is. You're going to give him an edible, all these different things. So I, I guess, I guess my question around is you have countries like Brazil, you have countries like Germany, you have countries like Denmark, and the way they're setting up their practices or, 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 or you know, their, their laws around it, that a doctor goes in, does a full diagnostic analysis of everything, prescribes cannabis. The cannabis is administered in a pharmacy. And they're, they're seeing Israel is doing the same thing, has done the same thing for, for many, many years. And it doesn't seem like the U.S. is even moving anywhere close to location. Even states, their medicinal states, they're trying as hard as they possibly can to change laws and become, recre- I hate using recreational uh, adult use, I guess, uh, states. But if that happens, you really you're missing the uh, the medical patient. If I if I go to Canada and I and there is very little advertising for products, the way that people are buying products are based on the the amount of THC they have. So it doesn't seem like we're moving forward in this country. It seems like we're we're going backwards. Yes, it's becoming more prominent. Yes, it's available in 37 states. Yes, I can get anything I want in California because uh, it's different than being in some of the other states, but the medical patient, the, why we started this whole thing, the people that really need cannabis, and not even saying for a specific diagnostic disease, but we were talking about sleep. Just for a symptomatic condition, I don't know what to do, and I don't know what to get. So w- w- the question I have is, what are you most excited about, and where do you see this sort of moving, and what can we do to help move this in the right direction that we can get people what they really need? You're right. The system is broken. It's not serving patients. It's not serving healthcare professionals. Um, and we need solutions. I mean, I'm most excited about the research side of things. I want to see clinical trials and I want to try to either support or debunk some of the myths or some of the ideas that exist. And so, you know, I'm excited about the randomized control trials that are in the pipeline that are going to come out both on the hemp-derived CBD side, 
as well as the medical cannabis side. But as you know, it's still difficult, very difficult to administer a cannabis product to a research participant in this country. You need approval by the FDA, the DEA, the National Institute of Drug Abuse. Um, and even though the DEA has allowed now for other providers besides the University of Mississippi, that's moving exceptionally slow. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm really excited about ultimately what we're going to learn through randomized control trials. And then, and then hopefully through regulation in states like you talked about where this model can be optimized so that the, the salespeople at dispensaries don't have to pretend that they're providing medical advice. I mean, I, again, I don't want to vilify them at all. Um, you know, they don't have much of a choice. There are people walking in and asking them medical questions, you know, and some of them are trained to say, well, I can't provide any kind of medical advice, but some people report that this product helps them sleep. Um, and that's really no different than the person who's at the health food store and someone walks in and says, what should I take for a urinary tract infection? You know, they can't say, oh, well, you should take this product. Um, but that needs to get fixed as well. And, and as you said, there are some states like Connecticut where the products are di uh, dispensed by a pharmacist. And, and so from a medical perspective, perhaps that's where we end up. And then from an adult use recreational standpoint, you know, that probably ends up looking a lot more like tobacco and alcohol. Interesting. Uh, what's some of the best advice you ever received? Um, God, questions like this always catch me <laughs> off guard. I mean, I think, you know, what I was saying before about thinking critically, this is something that I got long, long time ago um, when I was just a kid about believing what you hear in the world, you know, corroborate everything is the advice that I got. When you hear something from somebody, don't believe that it's true, seek to corroborate or refute it. Yeah, that, that makes total sense. Um, so I have uh, a few questions I ask all my uh, uh, guests. Okay. And, uh, so please describe your first experience with cannabis. Uh, I was young. I won't say how old. I was in Austria on a ski trip with uh, another family and one of my buddy's older sisters shared a joint with us and I smoked it and I didn't feel anything. And then your next experience was you got really high off uh, edibles and listened to Pink Floyd. <laughs> my next experience was, uh, I think, several years later and I was... Um, on Long Island during the summer. And I smoked a joint with some friends in the parking lot before we saw a movie. And I was stuck on the inside against the wall, the furthest <laughs> from the aisle. And I started feeling anxious and uh, couldn't really get out of the theater. And so, you know, end up, ended up racing out of there. So that was not the most pleasant experience. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. We should do your DNA test and see if you have a predisposition to stress reactivity with high amounts of uh, phytocannabinoids like THC. Uh, music. So big music uh, fan. Uh, I so I have some music related questions. Uh, do you remember the first concert you, you ever attended? I do. Yeah. Uh, I saw U2 1987. It was their first U.S. tour. Uh, Providence, Rhode Island. And uh, it was pretty epic. I mean, Bono had sort of that mullet with a super long hair in the back. And he climbed up on top of this enormous speaker who was waving the white flag. I mean, it was, I'll never forget that, frankly. And I didn't know who the hell they were. No one did at that time. And uh, it was a Sunday, Bloody Sunday uh, yeah. time, right? Is that yeah. What, yeah. Yeah, it was on that album. Okay. Yep. Uh, yeah, it's YouTube. First of all, YouTube puts on like, an amazing show. Even if you don't, you're not a fan of their music. I highly recommend going to the shows because they're super interesting and unique. Yeah, uh, really dynamic. Uh, is there is there a song or an album that you listen to that you would suggest our audience check out? I mean, especially if we're talking about cannabis, "Burning Spear," "Chant Down Babylon." I mean. I spent years and years and years listening to "Burning Spear" and reggae in general. 
Um, uh, Alpha Blondie live in Paris is another one. Um, and then Bob Marley, Babylon by Bus, also a live album. Those three I've uh, worn out over and over again as CDs and um, they're staples in my rotation. Nah, that's cool. Uh, what was the last concert you attended? Because I know it's it was COVID, so I'm just curious. Uh... That's a good question. I don't really know for sure. I saw Coldplay here in San Diego maybe three or four years ago, and that was a great show. Um, might have been, I saw Tom Petty about maybe a month before he passed away uh, here in Del Mar, and it was incredible. Yeah, that show that he did at the Bowl, that was his last show I was at. I was at and Were you? It was, nice. Uh, yeah. And apparently he performed with a broken hip, so he was taking all those drugs. That's, yeah. that's what they say to be able to alleviate the pain. And, you know, I couldn't tell anything during the show. So I, I could. Honestly, the, the, I, 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 I knew nothing about his medical background or his use of drugs and alcohol. And as soon as he came out and he the way he was talking, the way he was slurring, the euphoria, I was like, opioids, like without a doubt. Wow. Uh, that was my, just my, you know, opinion at the time. Yeah. It's, it's such a shame. We, we lost so many amazing musicians. If only we were able to address them with psychedelics and uh, phytocannabinoids versus, you know, opioids, uh, we'd still have them here. Yeah. Uh, you know, a ton of them. Uh, so what has cannabis meant in your life? Well, it's a great question. Um, honestly, it, Despite the two experiences that I shared with you a moment ago, one was neutral, one was negative, I would say overall, it has just opened my mind to consciousness. And um, it's given me a completely different perspective on how to be in the world and how to think. And it's stimulated creativity, not just in problem solving or like creating art, but just in terms of thinking about what it means to be human. I mean, I've had a lot of fun being high and going snowboarding or being at a concert, but I really do believe that it has expanded my consciousness uh, in a way that I don't know, maybe, but I don't know that I would have experienced without it. Yeah, that's it's very well said. Uh, makes sense. Okay, final question. Please describe what your room looked like growing up. <laughs> oh, I had posters on the wall. I had Michael Jordan posters. I had right. Phil Mayer, who was a silver medalist uh, slalom skier for the uh, ski team. I may have had a Christy Brinkley poster on my wall. Um, and uh, that's about it. A bed and some books. Yeah, I think I think we all had... In a, in that Christy Brinkley poster. That you're <laughs> no, I did not. For the record, uh, I do not know that as a fact, uh, Kimberly. You I just told you that. <laughs> well, I, I I choose to believe you for gender you and age reasons. Understandable. <laughs> well, what did you have on your walls, Kimberly? Yeah, I did it. Um, I had until I was eighteen. It's embarrassing like the girliest of, of bedrooms, which I don't even think could pass the litmus test today because it was Pepto-Bismol pink. Like it's girls' bedroom, 1980s catalog. That's what I had. <laughs> Throw up and you, pink. And you weren't allowed to have posters in the wall. No right? posters. Everything was pink and white and very girly and frilly. That's great. That's good. That, that, that tells us a lot. I'm glad, Jamie, you asked that question. <laughs> Thank you for the judgment. Uh, no, I was just saying that tells us, like the audience, a lot. That, that's all. There's no judgment. <laughs> um, okay, Jamie, uh, thank you so much. Where can people find out more about you? Where can they contact you? Uh, social media, wherever you want people to reach out. Yeah, my website, the Center for Medical Cannabis Education, has a website. It's centerformedicalcannabis.com, and that's probably the best place. There's lots of education there. There's videos, there's a podcast, there's articles, um, and then I have some social media accounts on there that you can access as well, and you can send me an email, whatever. 
Great. Thank you so much for joining us. This was great. Really, really appreciate your time. Super educational. And uh, I'm glad you gave us uh, your time. Thank yeah, you. that was fun. Thank you so much, Kimberly and Len. Appreciate you guys. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, I'm Gary, and I invite you to discover the Cannabis Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on a Canadian's cannabis culture. I would be the Canadian, and my cannabis passion and culture has been building for five decades. I share that passion for this wonderful plant in every episode, through conversations with cannabis advocates and enthusiasts, stories about the ever-changing legal environment, and some hands-on testing of product in a segment I call Cultivar Corner. The Cannabis Podcast, a Canadian's cannabis culture, one talk at a time.